Well, welcome. I see that uh, we have some faces in here that uh, weren't here the last time I was here two weeks ago. And uh, uh, so I uh, let me just let everybody know we've been engaged in a study of the book of Matthew for the last two and a half years or so. We're finally in chapter 12. Uh, so we're not rushing ourselves. Uh, but we're looking, we started looking two weeks ago at Matthew 12, verses 33 to 37. And uh, so I will do a little bit of review of what we looked at two weeks ago and then continue on through this passage. And in this passage, uh, leading up to it, Jesus has condemned the Pharisees in verses 31 and 32. He's told them that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, uh, who was at work through him, could never be forgiven. In other words, if you've seen all the revelation that there is, you've seen all the, the miracles, you've heard his teachings, you've seen the quality of his life, you've seen his hard attitude, you've been exposed to everything there is about him, and your conclusion is that he is from Satan, then you're unredeemable. Why? Because you have concluded the very opposite of the fullness of revelation. They were lost and they could never be saved. They were lost forever. And their words became that which ultimately damned them. Uh, they were not damned simply by the words they spoke, but rather it was their words that made their damnation evident. Uh, it's not that you're damned by your words, it's that you're damned because your words reveal the corruption of your heart. That's the issue. That's the substance of the passage. So it's no surprise as we look at verse 33 that the Lord begins to speak concerning the tongue. And he, he, he speaks concerning what men say. And in doing so, he, he gives one of the most sober warnings found in Scripture as he exposes the truth about the nature of man's heart. Uh, now, as we go through these verses, we're going to break them down this way. There's the parable, there's the personalization, there's the principle, and there's the punishment. Now, let's look again at the parable. We looked at this last time. Verse 33 says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Now, what does he mean by that? He means this, you must make up your minds about me and my work. Either consider me to be good and what I produce to be good, or consider me to be evil and what I produce to be evil. I cannot be evil and do good work, and I can't be good and do evil work. Um, see, if I do good works, it's by God's power. If I do evil works, it's by Satan's power. God empowers nothing evil. Satan empowers nothing good. Jesus is saying, when I cast out demons, how can you say that I'm evil when your own sons do the same thing and you acknowledge that is a good thing to do? If I do that, if that which I do is good, then the tree is good. But if I'm evil, then doing that is evil. And if doing that is evil, then your own sons, your own disciples are doing evil. Jesus used this simple parable more than once. He used it in Matthew 7 where he spoke of false shepherds in Luke 6, 43 and 44. He basically uses the same idea again. It's a very simple parable. He's saying, make up your minds. 
If the tree is good, its fruit is good. If its fruit is good, the tree is good. If it's a bad tree, it must have bad fruit. The quality of the fruit is the reflection of the tree that produced it. And the fruit of the Lord's ministry was good. They couldn't deny that. So what he's saying here is that the character of his own life should have been clear to them through what he accomplished. So we move then from the parable onto the personalization in verse 34. He doesn't just leave the parable hanging out there. He applies it directly to the Pharisees. Look at verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. He basically says, what in the world should we expect <clears throat> out of you guys but rotten, venomous stuff because you were evil to begin with? And he calls them a brood of vipers. It's basically, that's the same thing that John the Baptist called them in Matthew 3, 7. And Jesus is going to use it again against them uh, in his long series of woes that he pronounces on them in Matthew 23. Uh, but uh, when he's dealing with the self-righteous, arrogant, haughty Pharisees, he doesn't spare anything. He shows no mercy for their sanctimonious, hypocritical ways. When rebuke needed to be given, he gave it without hesitation. Now, what does this term vipers mean? Well, it refers to vipers, a genus of poisonous snakes. And the Middle East is filled with vipers of all kinds of varieties and sizes. And Jesus would have been well acquainted with the many different types of vipers that live in Israel. They're very common in the desert areas. In fact, their color and their shading provide excellent camouflage for them. And they're dangerous, poisonous snakes. Now, why does Jesus select vipers? Well, perhaps because they were the most dangerous creatures in that part of the world. Not only, not because they could shred and kill like a lion or a leopard, but because they were so plentiful and so deadly. Uh, they were the most deceitful, to be sure. And I also think because they represent the old serpent himself, the devil, the original snake in Eden, Jesus was naturally picked at. Uh, the serpent was cursed by God to crawl on his belly in the dust for the rest of its life. And that's what happened. And like snakes, the Pharisees descended from Satan himself. Uh, that's why Jesus says they're like their father, the devil. Uh, scripture calls Satan the serpent of old, and now Jesus calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Uh, they're filled with poisonous venom of legalism and self-righteousness, of hypocrisy and treachery, and they pump that poison into their victims. The word brood is from a Greek word which means offspring. It refers to the immediate descendants of an animal. They were the descendants of Satan. Uh, vipers lay eggs, and depending on the size of the snake, a, ba a batch of eggs may have from a dozen to four dozen eggs in it. I don't know if you've ever seen a brood of baby snakes that have been hatched from their eggs or not, but it's like a ball of squirming ugliness. Um, it's one of the creepiest things you'll ever see. It'll send shivers up your spine. Uh, and whenever these guys appeared, to Jesus, that group of Pharisees that were following him around looking for a way to accuse him, they looked to him like a brood of snakes, all tangled together with evil, poisonous intent. And so Jesus calls them deceitful killers who are filled with deadly poison. And then after that greeting to them, 
He says this, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? He's, he's applying his parable now. In other words, how can we expect anything out of your mouth but blasphemy? We wouldn't expect anything else because you're evil. Now notice that term, being evil. That's a monumental theological statement. That is a statement of the depravity of the human heart. Uh, they didn't just do evil. They were evil in their very being. And that's the legacy of the fall of Adam, that men are born into the world in sin. And that's why Paul says all of sin. That's why he said, told the Ephesians, you were dead in transgressions and sins. In other words, man is born into sin. He's born in sin. David said in Psalm 51, 4, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Uh, Jeremiah says, the heart is more deceitful than all else, and desperately sick, who can know it? Uh, the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, chronicles the heart of man. It shows that his heart in all times and in all circumstances is always evil. The depravity, the corruption of the sinful nature the, is passed from Adam down through every man as poison is carried from a fountain to the bucket that draws it. And so all people born into the world are evil. As Isaiah said, the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. And man without God abides in that evil state and produces only evil fruit. 1 Samuel 24, 13 says, As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness. And so Jesus applies the parable and says, We would expect vile things from vile people. It's impossible for you to speak good. They speak evil because they're evil. Now, we're about to start the next point, but maybe some of you guys can get some chairs. There's several up here, but there's not any back there. Okay. All right, then he moves on to the third principle. Verse, the last part of verse 34 and verse 35. <coughs> He says, for the heart speaks out of that which fills the, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. Now here's one of the most basic principles of scripture regarding man. Whatever you are on the inside is going to come out of your mouth. That is the major principle of this passage. The Pharisees blasphemed Jesus. They came to condemn Jesus. Jesus turns the table right around. And he says, you can't condemn me. I do good. Therefore, I am good. I must be good. Your vile blasphemy shows that you condemn yourselves because if that comes out of your mouth, that's what's in your heart. And we couldn't expect anything different from you being that you're evil. This is one of the most definitive, most far-reaching, most important, and most practically applicable principles in all of Scripture. Let's look at some of the terms in this principle so you'll better understand what it's saying. In Scripture, the term the heart is the basis of our thinking, our thoughts, our mind, our will, our source of knowledge. 
To us today, the, the, the term heart often refers to the seat of our emotions. But the idea in scripture is that it's the place of thinking, of reasoning, the mind, the will. The heart represents the character of a person. And therefore, to say that the words reveal what the heart is like is to say that they reveal what the person is like. When, when it speaks, the mouth simply reproduces verbally what is in the heart. To illustrate that, look over a couple of chapters at Matthew 15, verse 18. Matthew 15, 18. <clears throat> and here you have a very expanded statement of exactly what we see here in chapter 12. He says, it's the same principle. It says, verse 18, But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. In other words, it is what is inside of a person's heart that defiles him or her. And when it comes out of their mouth, then everyone else knows that he or she is a defiled individual in their heart. Then in verse 19 it says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, so the heart's the thinking place right there, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witness, slanders. All of those start in the thought processes and then work their way out of the mouth and into the actual activity. The mouth can only produce what is in the heart. And guess what that last word, slanders, is there in the Greek? It's blasphemia. Remember we talked about that a couple of weeks ago? Blasphemies. So if you have blasphemy in your mouth, you have blasphemy in your heart. And that's Jesus' indictment. Now you can go back to chapter 12. So Jesus says, your thoughts are filled with this vile blasphemy, and it's coming out of your mouth. And notice that he says, that which fills the heart. He uses a word which refers to an overabundance to the point that something spills over the top of the container. It is an excessive surplus. It's as if the heart is just jammed full and it's got to have an overflow valve and the mouth is that valve. The heart is full and the mouth is a spillover. The mouth is the overflow valve for the reservoir so that when your heart overflows with thought and intent, your mouth is going to be where it spills out. A person's character, folks, is known by his mouth. That which is in the heart of a man is going to come to the surface, most obviously, through his mouth. I don't have to talk to a man very long or on very many different occasions to find out whether or not his heart is pure or wholesome, uh, thinking uh, or of lustful or if it's lustful, dirty, and evil. It doesn't take very long. <clears throat> I don't have to wait to find out if his heart is kind and gentle and thinks of others or if it's kind, cruel, and self-centered because it's going to come out of his mouth. <clears throat> I can't think of how many times, I'm sure you're the same, that I've heard some politician or some famous athlete or actor or actress say something that was really nasty or racist or demeaning 
about some other person or group of people, and when they get backlash about it that might cost them votes or a lucrative contract, they backpedal and say something like, I'm so sorry, that's not really who I am. Everybody know, who knows me knows that's not how I am. I simply misspoke on that one occasion. And every time I hear someone say that, I immediately think of this verse. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. No, they said what they truly think and believe, and they didn't like the backlash they got for such a horrible statement. But their words revealed who they truly are. Look with me for a moment at Job 32. <clears throat> Job 32. Job is a book full of verbiage. Lots of people giving lots of answers about a lot of things. And an awful lot of talking. Speech after speech for 30 chapters. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Job have been having a dialogue in which the three so-called friends tried to convince Job that God only punished sinners in the way Job is experiencing and Job was trying to defend himself as being righteous and accusing God of not caring for him or listening to him. And all of this keeps going on. And finally, a younger man named Elihu, who's been sitting there listening to all this, decides to get his two cents in in chapter 32. He's listened to everyone else talk, and he's just about to die until he can give his own speech. And I want you to get a little idea of how the heart spills over in the mouth. Look at verses 17 to 20. I myself will also answer my share. I also will tell my knowledge. For I am full of words. The spirit within my belly presses me. Behold, my belly is like unvented wine, not open like new wineskins that is about to burst. Let me speak that I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. In other words, Elihu is saying, i got to get some relief, and the only way I can get some relief from what's spilling all over the place in my heart is to open my mouth and let it out. That simply illustrates how the mouth works. You can say a lot of things about what you're really like, but sooner or later when your mouth speaks involuntarily in stress or anger or impatience or isolation or when you're not with Christians, you'll reveal what's inside your heart. Now, I don't need to take time to show you that this principle is all through the scriptures. You can do that for yourself. You can read Proverbs 10, Proverbs 12, Proverbs 13, 14, 15, and 18. Uh, you can read the first part of Psalm 64. And in all of those places, you're going to find this same principle illustrated or commented on. In the New Testament, you can find the same thing. For example, if you go to the epistle of James, you'll find that he gave several powerful warnings about the tongue. James 1.26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious while not bridling his tongue, but deceiving his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. In chapter 3, verse 6, he says, the tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our existence and is set on fire by hell. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And you find that when Paul begins to sum up the sinfulness of man in Romans chapter 3, as he comes to the climax of man's vile character, he says in verses 13 and 14, 
Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. The mouth becomes the ultimate demonstration, as it were, of the evil heart. Whatever is in the heart is going to come out of the mouth. Proverbs 23, 7 puts it this way, For as he calculates in his soul, so he is. Well, next Jesus expands on the principle he just stated. And he gives the positive and negative aspects of it. Look at verse 35 back in Matthew 12. Verse 35. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. That's so simple, so basic. Obviously, you can only bring out what you've got on the inside. If you open a box, you're only going to take out of it what's in it. And you're, you are that box, as it were. The word treasure here is thesauros, which means storehouse or treasury. It's the word from we, which we get our English word thesaurus, which is a treasury of words. It's the word used back in Matthew 2.11 where the Magi came and it says, then opening their treasures, they saw us. They presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In other words, they brought their treasure boxes and in the boxes they had their gifts. And you have within you a box, as it were. You have a treasure chamber within you and the only thing you can get out of it is what is in it. And if you're an unbeliever and don't know God, then nothing good dwells in you, and so you can't get anything good out of it because it's not in there. You can only bring evil out of the treasury because that's all there is in the treasury. In a sense, you're like a computer. You remember the old acronym in the world of computers, GIGO, G-I-G-O? Garbage in, garbage out. In other words, the quality of data entered determines the quality of the results produced by the data. In exactly the same way, the quality of what is in a person's heart determines the quality of speech his mouth produces. Every man's heart is a storehouse, and what is stored in there will spill out of his mouth. So that's the principle. It's very simple to understand. And then we come to the punishment. Verses 36 and 37. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting of it, uh, for accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now before we look at these verses, let me point out that neither one of these verses appears in, math, in Mark and Luke's parallel accounts. So that is a clue that this is something different. Other clues are that the words before this are directed at the Pharisees. But these last two words, what he says is in regard to all people. When he says, for by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned, it's to us that he's speaking. And Jesus opens this statement by, with the words, but I tell you. That is close, very close to his most formal introductory formula, which is truly, truly, or I tell you the truth. 
It is a way of setting up a particularly important saying. In his commentary on Matthew, James Montgomery Boyce says this about these two verses. Quote, These verses are more sobering even than Jesus' teaching about the unforgivable sin. In the previous section, the words he is talking about are evil or particularly malicious words, but here they are merely careless or idle words. They are something of which every one of us, not just especially depraved or evil persons, is guilty. But, says Jesus, even these words are sufficient to condemn you at God's judgment. End quote. So then, let's look more deeply at these verses to determine what Jesus meant. Because men's hearts are an accurate gauge of, um, because men's words are an ac accurate gauge of their hearts, Jesus says they're going to give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. The objective criteria by which God can determine your eternal destiny can be a record of what you say. Because an evil person will not utter anything that's truly good. But the person who has been made good by the imputed righteousness of Christ being credited to his account by the grace of God experiences a transformed heart. And it will utter good things. Yes, there will be evil things that are also said. But we endeavor to overcome the flesh. But as the sanctifying process takes place in our hearts, there will be increasingly good things that come out of our mouths. However, an unregenerate person can say no truly good thing and can do no truly good thing. That is nothing which advances the kingdom of God and ultimately glorifies him. Now, they may say words that are nice. They might be nice words like I love you to their children or their wife or words of kindness and comfort and gentleness, sometimes words of truth and wisdom, but they are useless in terms of promoting the kingdom of God and advancing the name of Christ and exalting God's glory. They cannot do that. At best, they are humanly good, but not divinely good. But they are useless in terms of advancing the kingdom in terms of the exaltation of the Son of God. In terms of the glory of God, they're useless, purposeless, and ineffective. They do not promote those kind of things. That's true goodness, and the unregenerate man can't do that. So the unregenerate person's words, at the very best, are useless. They're useless in terms of promoting ultimate good, ultimate glory in the kingdom of God. Now, some people have a problem understanding that we will ultimately be judged on our works and on our words. Romans 2.6 says that God will repay to each according to his works. And here it says he will condemn and judge men according to their words. Your eternal judgment will come by your works and by your words. What this says is, not, is in no way to remove or negate salvation by grace through faith, but simply to show you that salvation by grace through faith will demonstrate itself in good works and good words, so that they become the objective criteria by which God makes that judgment. The words of men are accurate gauges of their hearts. 
If you have a transformed heart and Jesus Christ has come into your life and transformed your heart, then you will speak words by which God will justify you. If Christ has never changed your heart, then you will speak words by which God will condemn you. Now, as I said, that doesn't mean we're not saved by grace. We all know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. But the next verse, verse 10 says what? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. In Romans 10, 10, it says that the evidence of our faith is our words. It says, for with the heart a man believes, leading to righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. And according to Romans 15, 18, our salvation results in obedience by word and deed. So we are saved by grace through faith for good works and words, and the works and the words prove that the faith is really there. So that God can look objectively at your words and know whether you are redeemed. And you can do the same thing. So you have any question about whether or not you're saved, listen to yourself when you talk when no one else is around. Or <coughs> when you're angry, when you're irritated and upset or thoughtless, words will reveal what's in your heart. Now, what are these careless words? Well, you might think it means immoral, vulgar, crude, or blasphemous words, and it certainly would include those. But there are dozens of verses that condemn all those kinds of speech. I encourage you to do a personal Bible study of those verses sometime. But the Greek word used here means useless, indifferent, worthless, thoughtless, idle, lazy. So these are words that are flippant, irresponsible, in any way inappropriate. Perhaps the most careless and worthless words people speak are hypocritical words. And those are unfortunately among the most common. Here's what John MacArthur says about them, quote, when men self-consciously keep their vocabulary orthodox, moral, and evangelically acceptable while among fellow Christians, for the sake of impressing them or to keep from embarrassing ourselves, those words are careless and worthless in God's sight, and he will render them against their account. The calculated hypocrisy of such holy talk is a stench in his nostrils, end quote. How, uh, you say, can a true Christian do that? Of course they can. But a true believer's speech should and will reflect God's transforming work in the heart, because, but because of our unredeemed humanness, it still needs constant care if it's to be increasingly spiritual and wholesome and fitting and kind and sensitive and loving and, and purposeful and edifying, truthful. We need to be praying along with David. He said in Psalm 141.3, Set a guard, O Yahweh, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Psalm 141.3. And one important way we should want God to set that guard over our mouths is in the area of hypocritical speech. Now what about unbelievers? 
Well, let's begin by first looking at the first half of verse 37. It says, and by your words, you will be condemned. Every person is responsible for what he says. And if he rejects Jesus Christ, then he's going to be responsible for the result of it, which will be a lifetime of useless, empty, evil words. And this part of the verse applies to unbelievers, to the wicked. They will be condemned by their words. And if they're going to be eternally condemned for their useless words, think how much they'll be judged for their blasphemous words. Just think about all the words that are regularly spoken in our world. If statisticians are correct, then on average, each person speaks about 25 to 30,000 words a day, equivalent of 264 books, each 200 pages long, in a year, then there's a lot of talking going on in our world. And the sum of all those words by all of those unregenerate persons in terms of true goodness that advances the kingdom of God and exalts him and promotes the glory of God is nothing. It's nothing. They're all idle words. And they'll be accountable for the fact that in their whole lifetime, they spoke nothing that advanced the kingdom of God. Nothing that gave glory to Jesus Christ or the Father. The judgment spoken of here is the judgment of the great white throne, the ultimate eternal judgment. And by God's grace, believers aren't going to be there. Our sins have already been dealt with. They were taken care of at Calvary. Paul says in Colossians 2.14 that Christ canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Sure, we've sinned with our mouths, but ours have, are under the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ. But those with unbelieving hearts are going to have nothing but evil words. And by their words, they will be condemned. They will be condemned and then subjectively by their lack of faith in Christ and, and objectively by the words of their mouth and the deeds of their life. In fact, in his parable of the ten minas in Luke 19, Jesus said that when the master passed judgment on the man who did not manage his money well, he said to him, from your own mouth, I will judge you, you worthless slave. You see, when God comes to the time when he will judge the evil people in Revelation 20, he will judge and condemn the unbelievers on the basis of the words from their own mouths because it reveals what's in their hearts. But notice the beginning of verse 37 says, For by your words you will be justified. Now, what does that mean? That means the believer was going to be ultimately justified objectively by his words. We're saved by our faith in Christ, but it is manifest in our words so that our words become a valid criterion by which our salvation is made obvious and evident and manifest. Where there is a transformed heart, there will be a transformed mouth. Because the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So we will be held accountable before God for what we say. And if we speak evil words along with those good words that our new heart produces, we're going to be accountable 
to God for that. And on the day of the Bama seat judgment, we may lose our reward. We'll have to learn to tame our tongues too. Oh, there are always those good words we say. Those times when we praise and thank God, when we exalt Christ, when we speak truth and wisdom. Those times when we utter the very words of God, as it were, that prove that we are the redeemed. But then there are those times when that bitter water comes out of that same fountain. And James 3.10 says, those things ought not to be so. And Paul says in Colossians 4.6, let your words always be with grace, seasoned with salt. What does salt do? It prevents corruption. Our speech should never contribute to anyone's corruption. It should always prevent that. Salt also has a way of adding flavor. And so our speech should be charming wisdom and bring laughter and joy to others in a way that does not tear anyone down. As I said before, we should pray as David did when he said, Set a guard, O Yahweh, over my mouth. Set a watch over the door of my lips. But far more often than I like or that it should be, my mouth sounds a lot like my old self. Doesn't yours? Probably not. I'm probably the only one here who has that problem. <laughs> but then there are other times when my mouth is definitely representative of my new heart. A believer will speak good things, though often also evil things. But we will be justified by our mouths. So what does this mean to us? Listen. It says that there is no such thing as proving your salvation apart from some objective observation and demonstration. The Bible says you're saved by the manifestation of good works and good deeds. Good words, good, good works, good words. That is, your salvation is made visible, obvious, verified, validated. So don't come to me and say that you know someone who is a Christian but they just don't show it, that there's no fruit in their life. Folks, there's no such thing. We don't show it enough, but we show it because we were created for good works. So when you speak your 25,000 words today, listen to what you're saying. What does it tell you? When you write your book of 50 to 60 pages today, that's what 25,000 words is equivalent to. If you were to print it out and pass it around, what would it say about your heart? What would it say about who you really are? Would it betray the fact that you don't really know God, or would it reveal the fact that you do and that your speech is with grace seasoned with salt? Sadly, <clears throat> I have sat many times with groups of co-workers, some of whom were professing believers, and you couldn't tell the difference between the professing believers and the unbelievers. And their conversation was interspersed with filthy words and crude joking and sexual innuendo and double entendre and the like. Later when we were alone, I would ask them about whether or not they were concerned as a professing believer about the destruction to their testimony that such language caused. And sometimes it became apparent that their profession of faith in Christ was just a sham. 
a profession with no reality. But there were other times when they would become remorseful over what happened, and they would ask me how they could repair the damage they had done. And my answer was that they should first confess their sin to the Lord, and then second, go back to the people in whose presence they had talked in that way and confess to them that they were sorry for talking in such a filthy manner in their presence because they're Christians, and the Bible teaches Christians not to talk in that manner. Some said they would do so. I don't know if any ever did. But So if you find yourself in that same situation, I encourage you to do the same thing. I'm not saying it'll be easy, but it will open a tremendous door for future conversations about what it means to be a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. And the fact that you went back to them and confessed your sin to them is just another example of words that bring glory to God and provide evidence of the true nature of your heart. And they are words by which you will be justified on the day when you stand before the Lord. Because those words will reveal that your heart is truly his and that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And that brings us finally to the end of this passage. Before I even think about introducing the next section, this is obviously a topic which impacts all of us. So do we have any comments, comments or questions regarding that? Yes. No. It's every generation. It's every generation. Now, there are certain words that have gotten, that in my generation, our generation, no one used all the time. Now they're used all the time. But we just had a different set of words that were still considered just as filthy. And uh, I, you know, I didn't hear them in my home. Raised in a Christian home, I didn't hear them. Uh, I sure did hear them at school. And then, of course, I went into a profession where you live with them constantly, constantly, by both the people you interact with and your coworkers. So it was all the time. Any, any other comments? Yes, Richard. Uh, I assume what you said, that the term good man is a theoretical Thing because no one here can call himself a good man. We are only good. I'm only a good man because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Right. It's, that, it's not theoretical in that sense. It's theoretical in the sense as a human being, but not in the sense of one who's been redeemed. But it's a goal for us to yeah. be the good man. Okay. Anything else? Yes. Paul talks about how some people preach Christ out of envy and strife and others out of love and goodwill, but he was saying that he, in whatever way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed and then this I rejoice. So those who are preaching out of envy and strife, even though the words that they're preaching are good, their hearts are Evil and God's going to judge that, but Christ can be glorified even through... He can use the evil words 
of evil people to bring glory to himself. Just as he uses, get this, hold on to your, your shorts for this one. He uses Satan to accomplish his purposes. Just as he uses Satan to accomplish his purpose. Job being the most biggest example in scripture. He allowed Satan to do unbelievable things to Job to accomplish his purpose of revealing his own character and glory in that. Yeah, yeah. People, in the in answer to the question, why does God allow evil in the world? You know, why did he? Why did God in allow sin to come into the world and evil and all the things? Because you will never understand the holiness of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, without the presence of evil. It staggers your mind. And that's not my answer. That was the answer of Jonathan Edwards, the famous theologian. Whenever you mention like your co-workers and this and that, they would say things in front of a group. Uh, if, if, if they were truly saved, wouldn't that bother them? It should. It should. But, but many times I became, <laughs> I became the surrogate Holy Spirit to go to them and say, you know, you go to church every Sunday, you sit under the teaching of the word, and yet you're using this kind of language around these guys to fit in. And that, doesn't that bother you? And like I say, some of them very quickly, you figured out that they weren't really a believer because they got very angry and upset and defensive that I have no business telling them about uh, questioning their, you know, and all the rest, and 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 and, th and there was never a change in how their behavior was. But you had others who would say, oh, "You're right. I know it. I was just trying to fit in," and uh, you know, said, "Sorry, you shouldn't do that." <laughs> when I was in the service, I used to have the same thing. Needless to say, we pulled the alert you know, for seven days at a time. That morning, I had to be running a lot of stuff. A lot of times when somebody said these words that I considered very crass, I would just ask them, you kiss your wife with that same mouth? Yeah. And that was, that was always the patron. Make me pause. Okay. All right. Anything else? Well, I'm not going to open it up for five minutes on the next lesson. So uh, let's close with prayer. Lord, this is a lesson that impacts every one of us because we're all guilty at times of hypocritical speech, careless words, angry words, idle words. Lord, we, it's not to be that way. Lord, we uh, just confess that we are such sinners. Lord, at the same time, we praise you that you have 
redeemed us, that you're working in us, you're sanctifying us, you're transforming us that so that what we the way we behave is becoming more and more to match what you have done in our hearts. So we pray that each one of us would live lives in which our speech matches our commitment to Christ. And that we would bring glory to you and never words that are demeaning in any way. Lord, we pray now as we go into the next service that we would, our hearts would give praise and glory to our Lord and Savior and that we would apply the truths we learn in today's sermon and apply them in our lives as well. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.